The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the first episode of the second season of The Window on the World. With today's episode, we are launching a new format. The podcast will now focus more on the opinions rather than on the news. For each of the three main issues in the spotlight in the international and European public debate, we will hear up the best opinion editorials on them from Europe and the rest of the world. Today is Friday, August 26th, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the anniversary of Ukraine's Independence Day from the Soviet Union and of six months since the beginning of the war of the economic and fossil fuel crisis related to the conflict in Eastern Europe and of the video depicting Finland's Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, at a private party. We'll start right away with the first series of editorials. First series of editorials of the day addresses a double anniversary related to the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. The day before yesterday, August 24th, marked exactly six months since the beginning of the Russian invasion. In addition, in a sad coincidence, on the same date Ukraine also celebrates its Independence Day from the Soviet Union, achieved in 1991. The first commentary on the subject comes from Belgium and from the newspaper La Livre. Journalist Sebastian Gobert takes his cue from the double anniversary to comment on the direction the war should take. For Gobert, the conflict in Eastern Europe is part of a much larger context. Behind Putin, there is Xi Jinping, and behind Ukraine, there is Taiwan. Here, he is referring to Beijing's expansionist aims toward the small island to the south of its coast, reducing our support, regionalizing this conflict, and seeking compromises to get affordable hydrocarbons again would only send a message of weakness to Moscow, Beijing, and elsewhere. The Belgian columnist argues, the West should therefore continue on the path of sanctions, thus supporting the Ukrainian people, but without getting directly involved so as not to risk a widening of the conflict. The challenge for Europeans is to ensure that Ukrainians will sit at the negotiating table in the best possible conditions, Gobert concludes, for their freedom and for ours. We remain in Brussels with a second editorial, but we go over to the EU Observer which hosts the opinion of Ukrainian journalist Nikola Mokrovich. Mokrovich also looks to the future, but from the perspective of reconciliation between the two sides. To initiate this process, certain requirements will have to be met, such as the collection by international civil society organizations of evidence on possible war crimes. In addition, it will be necessary to bring their perpetrators to justice who will have to face fair trials consistent with international standards and independent of politics. Reconciliation, however, will also require the reinstallment of democratic state institutions, which were demolished by Putin's regime. Without an active participation of civil society organizations and institutions from Ukraine, Russia and the European Union in this process, the editorial explains, all such attempts would be doomed to fail. In conclusion, this is the right time now to support civil society on both sides. The latest opinion on the two anniversaries related to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict takes us across the channel and to the British newspaper The Guardian. 
Again, the paper in question decided to host an editorial written by a Ukrainian journalist, Natalia Gumenyuk. For the columnist, the most important holiday of the year, the brightest day when we thought not about the death of tyranny and the Soviet Empire, but the rebirth of the state and of freedom. This year is tinged with additional symbolism. While a parade is usually held to celebrate independence from the USSR, this year destroyed Russian military equipment was installed along Kiev's main street. Although scaled down, the celebration serves to not let Russia destroy our customary way of life as a form of protest. Looking back to 31 years ago, it seemed like a dream then. But the experience of the past 30 years, including eight years of struggle in the Donbass and six months of resistance to the invasion, Gumenyuk concludes, shows that we achieve our goals not because we hope, but because we work and fight, exhausted but determined. One of the main consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an energy crisis that is driving up bill prices and inflation. Indeed, Russia is one of the largest suppliers of fossil fuels to European states. In addition, climate change is pushing more and more countries toward renewable energies. How do these events interact with each other and how are states preparing for rising prices? The first commentary on the matter comes from French newspaper Le Monde. For columnist Guillaume Desobri, lawyer and professor of public law at the University of Amiens, and Pierre Albert Langlois, founder of an energy transition consulting firm, the French energy market has suffered a sharp price hike and thus attracted criticism from the country's authorities over its functioning. The columnist, the reason for this surge would also be volatility caused by a financialization of markets, which was not a problem for consumers as long as prices were low. Consumers need stability and long-term clarity on energy supply costs, write the editorials. To protect consumers from volatile prices on the exchange markets, suppliers should be encouraged or even forced to diversify their supply methods. At the same time, however, authorities should promote access to power purchase agreements, fixed price purchase contracts, which today are reserved for large banking groups. The establishment of guarantee funds by the state, the columnists conclude, could also enable small consumers to access these types of supply. The second editorial on fossil fuels and the ecological transition comes from the heart of Europe, the German newspaper Der Spiegel. Christian Stocker, professor of psychology at the University of Applied Sciences in Hamburg, maintains that the main reason we cannot do without fossil fuels are the economic interests of certain corporations. According to a study cited by Stocker, more than half of all financial fossil fuel-related stocks is held by 10 entities, including corporations, banks and governments. Six of these are private American companies joined by the Norwegian Central Bank and the governments of India and Saudi Arabia. The professor doesn't mince words. The interests of these 10 entities are, as is evident, at odds with the survival of human civilization. If, however, Stalker writes, it is enough to let companies that continue to sell oil, gas and coal stocks to their consumers go bankrupt, the same cannot be done with states which must be offered a way out. It is in cases like this, the professor concludes, that rich and resource-poor countries like Europe have a duty. The next editorial on climate change and rising prices comes from across the ocean 
and from the Wall Street Journal newspaper. According to Bjorn Lomborg, president of Stanford University's Copenhagen Consensus Welfare Research Center, the Inflation Reduction Act, passed by the U.S. government, does next to nothing to address climate change. The new legislation is supposed to combat rising prices related to the energy crisis, while at the same time promoting the development of renewable energies to counter global warming. According to calculations conducted by Lomborg and his research center, however, it turns out that the global temperature will only be reduced by 0.0009 degrees Fahrenheit, which is less than 1 degree Celsius, by the end of the century. Climate change can only be significantly addressed by investing in research and development of all types of green energy, the professor argues, solar, wind and fourth generation nuclear. To conclude, investing in renewable energies means making it cheaper, a crucial factor to push developing countries, such as those in Africa and India, to adopt it and provide them with the means to help fight climate change. At the end of last week, a video surfaced that showed Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin dancing with friends at a private party. The videos were strongly criticized by Finland's opposing parties, who deemed them inappropriate for Marin's political role. The same parties demanded that the Prime Minister submit to a drug test, which later gave a negative result. The first editorial on the subject comes from Southern Europe, and more specifically from the Spanish newspaper El País. For Richard Martinez Martinez, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Valencia, the spreading of videos of the party attended by Sana Marin are a dangerous drift for democracy. Notoriety resulting from political activity does not deprive someone of the right to keep private some parts of one's life, the professor states. In support of this thesis, Martinez also cites European rulings and directives aimed at protecting the dissemination of private data and content. But what happens then when, as is this case, we manage to gain access to a private part of the life of a public figure? What happens is that public debate about programs and the processes of public discussion on government decisions are replaced by overexposure on social networks and the emotional and immediate debate of politics, the lecturer says. Public debate then shifts from politics to the individual, with negative consequences for democracy as a whole, which becomes more interesting in debating parties rather than policies. It is unhealthy to deprive people who exercise government functions of their private sphere, Professor writes. Judging them on the basis of their private lives, Martinez concludes, leads us as a society to be guided by judgment that is heavily conditioned by the emotional manipulation of social networks. Let's stay in Southern Europe but move a little further east and go to Italy's La Repubblica newspaper. For columnist Massimo Ricalcati, the accusations against the Finnish Premier are not only bizarrely moralistic, but deserve to be considered carefully. The envious hatred of youth is a trait that recurs in any moralistic or paternalistic attitude. Rikalkati notes, the journalist also points out how these attitudes often target women engaged in politics and in positions of great responsibility. It is a typical modus operandi of moralists wanting to slander figures towards whom one feels envy. Has she been drinking? Has she taken drugs? In order to discredit them and subject them to their own judgment. 
Of course, for the journalist, there is nothing wrong with wanting to party. Indeed, what would politics itself be without the deeper meaning that belies partying? Knowing how to make decisions that tear down the dams within our society, that introduce the freshness of youth, and change the horizons of which we are accustomed. In conclusion, should not an idea of celebration, understood in this way, be at the heart of politics? The latest opinion on the subject comes from just outside the European Union and from the British newspaper The Times. For the editorials, politicians have as much right as their electors to enjoy themselves in whatever manner they choose within the bounds of the law and common decency. Miss Marin goes to rock festivals, nightclubs and bars. So what? That doesn't stop her from being a good prime minister. It might even contribute to making her a better one. In further emphasizing their position, the British journalists also draw a parallel with Winston Churchill, a politician widely loved in the United Kingdom, but who at the same time was a notoriously heavy drinker of brandy and champagne. Churchill probably wouldn't have lasted a month in the current puritanical age. Finally, criticism of Sana Marin reveals an idiosyncrasy on the part of some voters. They say they want representatives who look, sound and behave like normal people, and then pillory them as unstatesmanlike when they do. In conclusion, even politicians need to chill out sometimes, and so should their critics. And that brings us to the end of the first episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you for following us, and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, always with the best editorials from Europe and around the world. This week's editorial work was by Daniel Rutza, and at the mic, it's me, your host, Gail Rago. Happy vacation! <laughs> <laughs>